Welcome everyone to the Yonsei Podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Hiro. And we'll be your host for today's episode. As the young adult branch of Japanese American Memorial Pilgrimages, Nikkei Rising will be bringing you roundtable discussions with young adults involved in and around the Japanese American community to honor our community's history and explore its implications today. For today's episode, we're talking about the story of Sei Fuji, an Issei civil rights activist who fought discriminatory laws and created positive social change during a time of escalating racism towards Japanese Americans and Asian Americans in the early to mid 20th century. Our first guest is Jeffrey G. Chen. Jeffrey is a commercial and feature film director and publisher. His works have presented at Walt Disney Family Museum and ABC's Good Morning America, and is best known for his award winning short film, Little Tokyo Reporter, starring Academy Award winner Chris Tashima, who played civil rights leader Sei Fuji. The film won over 21 awards and inspired many successful community projects. Jeffrey is also a protege of the late. John Singleton and worked on Showtime's Billions and FX's Snowfall. Hi guys, this is such an honor to be part of the Nikkei Rising podcast today. This is Jeffrey G. Chin. Right now I'm calling in from Hawaii. Our second guest for today's episode is Saeko Hika Dickinson. Saeko is a freelance translator, interpreter, and instructor at the Torrance branch of the Japan Visual Media Translation Academy, JVTA, one of renowned translation schools in Japan. She was born and raised in Okinawa, Japan, and came to the U.S. as a student in 1991. As a freelancer, she interpreted at business and technical meetings both in Japan and the U.S., and translated and edited various documents such as contracts, technical papers, and manuals, and autobiographies. Saeko translated A Rebel's Outcry from the original manuscript in Japanese to English for its U.S. release. Hi, I'm Saeko Higa Dickinson. I'm a translator. I... um translated Sei Fuji book, and uh, I live in Torrance, California. And our third guest today is Chris Tashima. Chris is an actor and director from Los Angeles, with over 35 years of experience fighting for opportunities to tell Asian American stories of history and an identity, on stage and on screen. He won an Oscar for Visas and Virtue, which he directed and starred in, portraying Holocaust rescuer, Japanese diplomat, and humanitarian Chiune Sugihara. He was honored to play Sei Fuji in Jeffrey G. Chin's historical drama, Little Tokyo Reporter, and is excited to see Fuji's life story now being shared with the publication of his biography, A Rebel's Outcry. Hey, everyone. This is Chris. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. We're so excited to have all of you here for today's discussion. Before we get started with the questions, I'd first like to ask Jeffrey a little bit about Sei Fuji's history for everyone. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast today with you. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Ji Chin. And, you know, Seifuji as a community and civil rights leader, I feel is a critical player in our history as Asian Americans in California. He's the reason why Asian immigrants are able to own land in California, as well as other groups who were not able to get citizenship. And also, He was an outspoken leader for many young Japanese Americans uh, to promote a better quality of life and equality for them as they pursued their life in the United States. Historically, Seifuji is best known for winning two major Supreme Court cases one to help build a hospital in direct response to the 1918 flu epidemic, known as the Jordan 
v. Toshiro case, and later in the 1952 case, Fuji v. California, where he overturned the California alien land law. Say Fuji's legacy, I just feel like it's endless. It's just, he's such an amazing man and not enough people know about him. And because of that, I was just wondering, like, when did you all first learn about Sei Fuji? I was first introduced to Sei Fuji in 2010, where I was attending a first National Asian Pacific Islander Historic Preservation Forum in San Francisco's Japantown. And that's where I met Fumiko Carol Fujita. She's a founding member of the Little Tokyo Historical Society. And she began discussing the history of an early civil rights leader who helped build a hospital for his community in direct response to that 1918 flu epidemic, which is ironic because today we're very lucky to have access to healthcare during this pandemic. And so you can think about the major contributions of Seifuji's involvement to help provide services for young mothers and children during that time period. I actually first learned of Seifuji from Jeffrey when he came to me to say, ask if I would be in his film. If I can digress just for a minute, I'd just like to commend and congratulate and thank Jeffrey for this book. You know, I've, I've known that this has been a dream of his for many years and to see the final product it's just it's just amazing it's just the most beautiful book such a wonderful tribute to Seifuji so congrats Jeffrey um yeah you know say Seifuji is just an amazing person so when Jeffrey approached me this is uh I think in uh, 2011 and said he wanted to make a film about him I didn't know who he was. And I kind of feel like I know some Japanese American history. And yet here was someone completely unknown to me. And when I started reading about him and all the things that he accomplished, and it it was just it was shocking to me. And it was it was it was kind of an awakening that, you know, there's so much history that we don't know. So, you know, of course, obviously I said yes to the film, which became Lil Toka Reporter. And that whole experience was it was it, it was a it was a joy to go through that learning experience about this man and and kind of walk in his footsteps. So again, you know this this book is years later after that, and just an amazing tribute. I hope everyone gets a chance to hold it in their hands and turn page by page and look at the illustrations, um, all of the graphics, and. There's a full biography in the text. So, um, Jeffrey, thanks for publishing this book. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just feel so honored to be part of this. And what I think what's been so precious and, and heartwarming about this experience is that we had the story of someone that had been long forgotten or could have been forgotten. And we've been able to generate interest in the life of this individual and, and Seifuji representing that role model that, you know, a lot of us can look up to, you know, he always found solutions to any sort of problem or obstacles. And he was adamant about supporting the community here in the United States. So I don't know. I just so grateful. (laughs) Thank you. Oh yeah. He, he was totally forgotten, but no longer. You know, there, there. Jeffrey's done other tributes to him, 
in a little Tokyo, there's a memorial lantern. Um, of course, we have our film and uh, many other things. I'm sure we'll talk about them. Oh, and then Sayaka, how did you first learn about Seifuji? Um, well, I was introduced to Jeffrey and uh, Carol Fujita of Little Tokyo Historical Society, who actually unearthed uh, the history of Seifuji. She was researching the Japanese hospital case. She was a retired pharmacist. So she, her interest was into medical field. And then she was astonished to find uh, this Japanese person who's so knowledgeable about the law, yet he couldn't become a lawyer because of the uh, discrimination, but he accomplished so much. And then he met Jeffrey in the conference in San Francisco, I believe. And then Jeffrey proposed to her to make a movie. And she, she was, she told me that she couldn't believe what he said. Then, you know, several um, years later, it, the dream came true. <laughs> so I joined them after they made the movie and they decided to um, publish English translation of uh, Ken Sato's book, um, whose story um, is the basis of Jeffrey's Little Tokyo Reporter. This is the uh, original book, Ken Sato. And Jeffrey and uh, Carol went, went all the way to Yamagata Prefecture, where Ken Sato retired. And Ken Sato was really impressed by their zeal and passion and the perseverance. So he, you know, bestowed the book, basically, their older um, ownership to Jeffrey and Carol. And then they decided to hire me as a translator. And um, to be honest with you, I couldn't believe this day would come <laughs> because it was such a long way. <laughs> We had to do go to um, libraries, Jeffrey and I, and then, you know, uh, try to look for the very, very old newspaper articles in the basement of UCLA library. But I was just, just mesmerized by what he accomplished. So kudos to Jeffrey and, of course, um, Carol. And I was so excited to meet Chris Tashima in person at Little Tokyo Historical Society after I saw Little Tokyo Reporters. So, so, you know, you guys opened up the way for me. So I'm just full of gratitude. <laughs> and thank you for having me here. <laughs> As Sayaka was mentioning that we spent a lot of time going to UCLA Library because it's not until recently that some of these newspapers have made it online. So originally it was skimming through the microfiche at JNM where it would print out an equivalent of a photocopy. And then eventually we would have to reserve exact reels from the UCLA library. And sometimes I had to go to the entire opposite side of the campus just to go to one of the scanning machines to review any of these like older articles of the Kashimainichi, which is uh, the California, Japan California Daily News by Seifuji. Jeffrey, how did it feel as a Trojan walking across the UCLA campus? <laughs> Let's see. Well, I guess I wasn't, um, I didn't become a Trojan until 2013 
right? So I think I got, I got to stick my toes in the water a little bit because I didn't want to ruin my life. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, yeah, both of my siblings went to UCLA. So I, it would have been a dream to also have gone to UCLA, but going to USC, the network has been incredible and the support that we've had, especially with Sei Fuji being a 1911 graduate of their law school. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that I think all of you deserve a huge round of applause for all the hard work you've put into bringing Sei Fuji's story, uh, not only to to the screen, but also to the book uh, and just to the larger Japanese American population and just actually being able to bring his story to everybody, because I think that's such a huge achievement. And both Kido and I being historians know how much hard work goes into that and all those hours spent in the library and in the archives. So a huge round of applause to all of you. And we're so excited to be able to share this story with all of our listeners too. And so I want to go back a little bit. I know, Jeffrey, you had mentioned some of the achievements that Seifuji had accomplished throughout his lifetime. And I wanted to ask everyone sort of what they think about the work that he did and why it is so important for our lives today and how it affects us today. So maybe, Matthew, I could quickly give a nice little summary of the breadth of Seifuji's life. So Seifuji was born in 1882, which was the same year of Chinese exclusion, which expanded out to full-on Asian exclusion in the United States. He immigrated uh, to Los Angeles in 1903. He attended Compton Union High School, and according to certain records, he was also a houseboy for the Ralph's Market family. He later attended USC Law School in 1911. That's the year he would graduate. And during that time, anyone who attended USC was supposed to get a law license. However, due to his lack of citizenship, and it being against the law for many Asians to obtain citizenship unless they were born on American soil, he was not able to practice on his own. So he ended up pairing up with a law school classmate, J. Marion Wright, and together they fought and won two of those major Supreme Court cases. Outside of that, Seifuji was involved with helping build some of the first labor unions, working with Filipino, Chinese, white, um, and Mexican farmers. And he was also found ways for families to be able to purchase land under their children's names. So he used to actually send out pamphlets and teach people that you can purchase land under your child's name since they're technically American citizens. However, of course, they were, came with its own obstacles with what was called the later the astute cases where the California government tried taking the land back from those families. As I mentioned, the hospital, which was in direct response to the influenza epidemic. And there was a loophole that he found where he, there was five Issei doctors, which is five first generation immigrant doctors who came in and wanted to help build a hospital for the community. And the trick to help them own the land or at least lease the land was to incorporate. And as a corporation counts as an individual in California law. And also with the, um, I think it was the gentleman's agreement under the terms of commerce that that was able to uh, be supported as a corporation. And then uh, let me see. Yeah, later there was a large anti-Japanese movement kicking out farmers, arresting them, owning land that targeted over 100 Japanese farms. And he not only published booklets, but he also used his newspaper, which he founded thanks to the support of the Yamaguchi Kenjin Kai to help educate 
these farmers who were dealing with these issues, both locally and also issues that they might have uh, in Los Angeles, Little Tokyo, which also <laughs> includes the interesting moments in his life where there were several assassination attempts on his life because sometimes he would what would be called muckrake or project information out there that's not always positive but important for people to know in order to protect these farmers who would come in and sometimes get cheated in the gambling halls. Yeah, so those are sort of the broader strokes that I wanted to make sure that I mentioned before we dive deep. I think is contributions were a big part of establishing our community. You know, he, he was in the earlier wave of the Issei, and I think the leaders really played a big part in what, what, what we're still feeling today. You know, bringing, bringing the community together. There were dozens of Japan towns, and, you know, when immigrants came here, they had a place to feel at home amongst their own people. And, and it was important to recognize what the leaders of those communities did to establish that. And, you know, I think it, it, it helped the Issei and Issei endure camp and survive after camp. And certainly, you know, after camp, everything that was needed to sort of rebuild. And I think that fed into eventually winning redress. And, you know, the number of politicians we have and the community leaders that, you know, they're all standing on the shoulders of people like Seifuji. And that's, I think that's a big part of why we are a strong community. We've always been sort of very, I've, I've always felt like we've had a strong community. It's been very organized with all the JCLs and basketball, you know, and, and so many different ways in which we all stuck together. So I believe people like Seifuji were a big part of creating all of that. I totally agree with Chris. As a say, I came uh, directly from Japan. So I wasn't born in the United States, but after I worked with Jeffrey and also did some volunteer activities as a translator for Little Tokyo Historical Society, I was so impressed by the close-knit community. Especially in Little Tokyo, there's a long history of a community and the leaders of generations and those there are young leaders like, you know, you guys, uh, Hiro, Matthew, and Marisa. It's so encouraging for me to see, you know, being interested in the history because there's a, there's a wonderful lesson we can learn. I didn't know anything about immigrant history until I discovered and translated the book. So it really opened up my eyes and there are three things that really impressed me about Seifuji. One is his use of media as his own venue to disseminate his message that we should treasure uh, our Japanese culture, even in the middle of uh, discrimination and anti-Japanese sentiment. And his, he used very effectively his media of newspaper or broadcasting. I think that's so impressive. And another thing is his uh, use of legal knowledge. Even though he wasn't able to become a lawyer due to discrimination, his maneuvering of this legal court case is just impressive. Like uh, Jeffrey said, uh, because the Japanese were not allowed to own the land, he came up with an idea to set up a corporation to buy the land for the hospital. That's amazing. 
Another thing is he used his connection and language skills to help uh, impoverished Japanese people or uneducated farmers. So he is just amazing. His legacy is just beyond expression. And, and like the funny thing about when he was sending out those pamphlets, Seifuji would actually go out to those farms and on the actual pamphlet, you have a picture of him holding, um, what was that famous painting with the mom and pop in front of the farm with the pitchfork? Anyway. American Gothic? I think it may be American Gothic. Um, anyway, but we have Seifuji standing in the middle of the farmland with, I think it was a some sort of rake or irrigation tool oh, yeah, yeah. hanging over his shoulder. And that's right on the front of the booklet that he's using to help educate these farmers how to buy land under your children's name. This this guy wasn't just like isolated in little Tokyo or separated. He interacted with people from all over the world. In fact, when I was doing research in Japan, I saw a picture of him at the museum in Shin Oshima, where he's at a funeral in San Francisco. And so even those clues of him traveling across California, those are stories we're still uncovering <laughs> in our own process right now. Honestly, there's just so much that Seifuji did. Like, I had the opportunity to read the book before this porting in. Honestly, each page, I was just like, what can this man not do? <laughs> like, it, it almost feels like Seifuji was like a superhero, you know? And that said, like, with everything that he's done and, and how the things that he's done has continued to affect our community today, um, is there anything that you want? our listeners to walk away from this episode knowing now about say Fuji or how like he has affected us all is like, if there's one thing that you want them to, to remember from this podcast or, or from the book or anything about say Fuji, what would that be? So one thing I find interesting is that a lot of Asian Americans and just sort of young adults right now, that the information that's been passed out to us in, in, in school and, and whatever's on social media, it often compartmentalizes what the contributions are of Asian American pioneers. And it makes it seem like we only looked after ourselves, but that's completely incorrect. In fact, I want audiences to know that Seifuji was doing things that Cesar Chavez wanted to do, what Martin Luther King wanted to do, even before their involvement because Seifuji also was involved with the race relations campaign for I think five to six years leading up to World War II with a prominent black attorney Hugh Macbeth. I've been in touch with his great granddaughter actually talking about that history and it's incredible the type of efforts that Seifuji did and you look at the race relations campaign he was traveling with the Chinese attorneys there was rabbis they would travel to the, the World's Fair. They would go to just different churches and community centers across California. And there they would speak about how to build a better community. And he made all these efforts, even knowing that there could be potentially a war between United States and Japan. He was dedicated to make sure that the community here would be protected. And I think that's something that people should understand and appreciate that we didn't just appear in like the 1970s or 80s as, you know, new immigrants or whatever. We've, we have a history over 100 years here in the United States. And 
it's not to pat our own back in the contributions. It's just to show that when we discuss what is important in civil rights and representation, we're part of that conversation. And we're going to continue being part of that. And so I hope that audiences who have a chance to read the book, even watch Little Tokyo Reporter, or even listen to this podcast, it's an opportunity to open their perspective to know that civil rights is a very nuanced experience and ongoing, like evolving process that we all can contribute to. And so for that, I'm really proud, but I also hope it resonates with people that way. I actually hope listeners walk away from this not having enough, you know. Um, no, there isn't one thing that I would like people to know about him because I don't think I could encapsulate that in sort of one idea except that he was a pioneer. But, you know, I hope people are intrigued. I hope they're curious. I hope they get the book. You know, when, when we made the film, it was, it was a short, you know, it was a uh, half an hour long. And we barely touched on one little chapter of his life in 1935. And the whole point of that was to make people want to know more. And years later, here comes the book with all of that, that you could want, possibly want to know about him because it's, it's, it's his whole life story. So uh, I, I don't have that. I, I actually hope I'm not providing that because I want listeners to go get the book and look at it and read it and just start to appreciate what one one person did for all of us. Well, I cannot express in one word, but he had a colorful life and there was attempted murder. So just to know his life is very, very, very interesting, very dramatic life. So I hope you get to know him. <laughs> and um, if you know him, you get to know the history too. <laughs> yeah, and that's why I've loved so much about getting to talk to all of you throughout not only this recording, but in the preparation for this recording and hearing all about his life and his background and that history and also how much he affected, obviously, our community for and what it is today. And so I think going back again, uh, and looking at the lead up to this book, I want to go back and actually ask Chris a question first. Um, so obviously you played Seifuji in the Tokyo Reporter, and we sort of wanted to ask you, like, what was it like to prepare for that role and to prepare to uh, sort of bring his story to life for the first time? Well, it was a lot of fun. Um, what was it like? You know, it's, it's really hard to put into words. I mean, it's, it's really what acting is about. And in a special way, because it's, it's not just a character that, you know, that it's a very special character when when you understand what he did and, and you have an appreciation for your own history, as I do, it just becomes all that more a, a unique experience. And the whole process of acting is is living that character in scene and in words that you say and in ways that you relate to people. And it's all made up because it's all fictional and you have to make choices every second about what would he have done? How would he have walked? Wherever he was sat, you know, what was his position? And those things just become, you know, part of an acting process and you, you fold in a lot of your own, you know, your own experience. But, but all of it was about exploring some really special history. And, and so um, it, it, was, it was just one of those really rare experiences. You don't, you don't get that very often 
and then to share it, you know, to be able to share it with all the screenings that we've done and to talk about him and continue to talk about him. One thing about a film um, is that it will live forever, you hope, as long as it keeps up with that technology and you, you can keep, you know, reformatting it. But you get to share it and, and, and you get new audiences all the time that get to learn something about him and hope you hope will become interested in his life. So it was, you know, it was, it was sort of a peak experience of what I like to do, which is historical dramas about our history, about, you know, they always say, if, if you don't tell your own history, you know, no one will, Who, who's going to tell it? We have to tell it ourselves. So this is one of those cases. And it's, it's a rare experience. And even though it was a short, it, you know, it, it felt like a feature. It felt it's, it's had a longer life than features that I've been in. So, you know, it's, uh, it was really just, it was a joy through and through. When I first saw a little Tokyo reporter, I, Chris, I think your portrayal of Seifuji is, is excellent. Just w- while watching that short film, I could just see the confidence and charisma that Seifuji had and walked with through each and every scene that you were in. And so I just, the whole thing is 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 great, and I, I loved it. And I hope that our listeners take some time to uh, watch Little Tokyo Reporter if they get the chance. Um, but like you were talking about, Chris, how while portraying Sei Fuji or portraying any character, you 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 create this bond, this connection with them. Kind of thinking about that, we also wanted to ask Seiko while translating the book to English. Did you ever feel that you were developing your personal connection with Sei Fuji as you were um, learning more and more about him through this translation process? Uh, yes, definitely. I'm a translator and also an educator. I teach translation at the Japanese school. So uh, what really inspired, inspired me was uh, Sei's passion to educate these poor, uneducated farmers in a very plain language. So his ability to communicate was just really impressive. And also right before he was uh, taken to a camp, he fell ill uh, due to hypertension. And in the middle of sickness, he wrote a letter begging a Catholic priest to help people in the camp. That, that was a letter to uh, Father Lavery and Father Lavery and his staff also visited many camps to help those people. So that's his power, his communication, his skill of language. So that really inspired me. So I'm not a native speaker speaker of English, but I am bilingual. So I can read Japanese and communicate what it's said in the book or um, whatever uh, into English and let people know. So I was really empowered actually during the process. And at the Little Tokyo Historical Society, people really love to hear what I said. <laughs> it was just out of the book. I just translated, but they were so eager to hear what's coming next. When is the book going to be released? So that really inspired me too. Has the book been released yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think my favorite thing about the question of when the book was going to be released, the first thing that Chris said was, uh, that's great. 
it's only taken 10 years. <laughs> or, I don't know, Chris, what did you say? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't remember exactly, but it was something like that. It's no, it, it has been years. I, you, you've been talking about this forever. And, <laughs> and uh, every, every year end would roll around and it's like, I hope we get it out in time for the holidays. And then the next year comes by and <laughs> But uh, it's it's here, and it's uh, it was worth the wait. One of the biggest blessings about publishing this book was, you know, in the original text by uh, Kenichi Sato, he talks about traveling, finding the lost land that represented was represented for the alien landlock case, and also visiting Seifuji's village in Japan. And Carol and I, our journey actually began when we went to go search for the land and then we and this was even before we knew of the book and then we traveled all the way to Medford Oregon to visit the daughter of J. Marion Wright and there she discussed that she had a copy of a biography written about Seifuji and that allowed us to connect all the way to Japan where we went to uh, Yamagata, Yamagata, and we were able to visit the author Kenichi Sato. And that the, around the same trip, I think a year later or so, we went to go connect with Seifuji's granddaughter who lives in the ancestral home. And we stayed at the same ryokan that Kenichi Sato stayed at when he went to go interview the family. And then with the Aurora grant, I was able to literally go to Seifuji's middle school and high school and I found a yearbook written it was a different Fuji family member or maybe not even related at all but literally had the name inscribed on the yearbook at the university and we flipped to the page and we found exactly when Seifuji decided to drop out of the university and fail out so he could go study in America and so I got to explore the entire path and so I don't know, like, I'm so excited for when readers get to look at the book. I know they won't immediately see it, but we've very delicately selected the images and supporting content so that you can experience that journey for yourself, too. And I love seeing all of that enthusiasm and all the passion that all of you have put into this, and especially you, Jeffrey, because actually you just answered the final question I was going to ask you. So that's fantastic. Uh, so thank you for going ahead and answering that already. But I think with that too, I, now that we've come to full circle and seen how the book has been published, I think that actually brings us almost to the end of our time. So with that, I think also we want to end, before we end off, we of course want to shout out the book and everything like that. Can I just say a couple of things? Um, making this book and making the film has been an incredible and magical process because when we showed Little Tokyo Reporter in Japan in Seifuji's ancestral home, Seifuji's granddaughter said she saw Seifuji visit him that evening. There was a knock at the door and it had been exactly 100 years since he had left that home because he had visited in 1913 and then he had come back. Uh, <laughs> his spirit had come back when we were able to make the film. And, you know, the whole issue of not having his law license through the help of the historical society, we were able to get the posthumous law license with the support of the 
uh, Japanese American Bar Association in Sydney Kanazawa. And we also, LTHS members got historic designation for the hospital we built. And it's, it's just been incredible that all of this has happened because you look at Seifuji's life, he fought in America to protect his community for 51 years, but was a citizen for only 51 days. And I just hope that if you guys have a chance to take a glimpse at any of this, that you can sort of feel that same excitement that we have. Um, and we've been really lucky to have the support from the community. This book was helped funded by the Artani Care Grants and the Union Bank Grant. And, you know, I think it really takes a community to bring these stories to life. And so thank you so much for being part of this. So for all of our listeners out there, you can order a Rebels Outcry at littletokyohs.org. And please follow Little Tokyo Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We also have very exciting news. A limited edition collaborative journal is being made with Japangelist in Little Tokyo. You can receive your complimentary journal with your donation of the book exclusively at Japangelist's shop in Los Angeles' Little Tokyo. And before we go into our outro, I wanted to ask everyone here, what's next for Seifuji's story? So 2022, April represents the 70th anniversary of the overturn of the California alien land law. So we're hopefully going to be hosting some programs this spring, uh, hopefully with the museums as well as possibly USC. And we've also been very lucky to garner some support to start integrating Seifuji's story into the Asian American Studies curriculum. And so we're building towards that as well and a possible feature film. That's amazing. I mean, <laughs> it never ends. And that's that's the best part, you know? Um, the journey never ends. Um, thank you, Jeffrey, Saiko, and Chris for being our guests today. And to everyone listening at home for joining us for the story of Sei Fuji's activism and the legacy he left for the community today. Yes, and be sure to join us for our next episodes in the coming weeks. For season three, we'll be looking to release one to two episodes a month. So make sure you follow at Nikkei Rising on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for release dates, episode titles, descriptions, and guests, as well as updates on all other Nikkei Rising program. To listen to all seasons one and two, you can find the Yonsei podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and the Japanese American Memorial Pilgrimages website. The Yonsei podcast, sponsored in part by the Minidoka Pilgrimage Planning Committee, is made by Hido Adeza, Michelle Heckert, Yoko Federenko, Johnny Narita, Matthew Wisebly, and Sachi Koide, with theme music by Michelle Heckert. And a special thank you to fellow Nikkei Rising member, Marissa Nakata, for helping put up this episode together. Before we sign off, we do have one more announcement. If you didn't know, last September, I actually moved to Japan. And that said, it's been a tad difficult for me to record episodes because of the time difference. Um, that is why I'm sad to say that this will be my last episode being a host on the Yonsei podcast. Uh, I'll still be helping out in the background, but you won't be hearing me as often in the episodes anymore. Um, but it's been a great ride, and I thank everyone for the memories made while being a host on this show with all my heart. Um, yeah, this has been the Yonsei Podcast, and it's been Yonsei!